Redeemer Fellowship. If you could open up in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, and also for a moment keep your fingers in Mark chapter 2. We're going to use that to set up our passage and set the context. The last couple of chapters have all been about the outward expansion of the message of the gospel, going from something that was somewhat regional to Jerusalem, somewhat ethnically belonging to those who are of pure, natural Jewish descent by birth. They've also focused heavily on the persecution of the early church and the trials that they had to face and how God used persecution to bring about the outward expansion of the good news and also introducing the story of Paul and how God would grab a hold of the persecutor of the early church and use him to bring about the outward expansion of the gospel for good news. And as you read through it, you can't help but come to the conclusion that Jesus shared in Matthew 16, 18, that he is going to build his church and even the gates of hell itself cannot prevail against it. Neither could persecution or falling out of favor with national, political, or religious leaders, or poverty, or uncertainty, or any other thing. Nothing can stop God from building his church. That's what we see demonstrated in the first nine chapters of the book of Acts, and that is still true today, 2,000 years later. So the early chapters of the book of Acts almost read as if people are trying anything and everything they can to be able to disprove those precious words of Jesus from Matthew 16. It's as if the entire world is coming against the building of this remarkable new work of God known as the church. And God is showing that there is literally nothing that man can do that will stop him from fulfilling his promise that he will build his church. And there is nothing that hell can throw against it that will prevail against it. God will prevail in building his church. That promise was true yesterday, that promise is true today, that promise will be true until he returns and ransoms his church in glory. So with that being said, I really wrestled with how does this next passage fit into the flow of the story that we see going on. I'm of the belief that it was God, the Holy Spirit, that not only inspired the biblical writers, And every word that they pen was divinely inspired by God for them to do so. But I'm also of the belief that the way that the Bible is actually laid out was divinely inspired by God. And what I mean is each passage is put exactly where it is on purpose. And even the placement of the passages are there to tell a story. To put it simply, Luke, when he wrote Acts, he didn't just decide to write a story about Paul and then decide, well, next, or chronologically, or the next thing that fits naturally in this story is I'm going to write a story about Peter, because Peter might feel left out if he was to read my book. and and he didn't find a big section about himself in there. So the reason this passage comes after the passages that we previously studied is because God wanted it there. God put it there. 
to tell a story. And the reason that it fits in the context is just as important as the words itself in understanding the story itself. But I could not, for the life of me, as I was studying this passage, figure out how these two seemingly random passages about Peter being involved in miraculous healing fit in the context of what was going on in Acts chapters 8, 9, and 10. Usually when I struggle to figure out how a passage fits in its context, the how is actually what the whole passage ends up being about. It's like if you're willing to do the work to figure out how this fits, and you don't just be lazy and shoehorn it in there, you get the satisfaction of mining a gem out of this passage that you would otherwise miss. It's kind of like a fruit with a tough exterior, but a really sweet inside. If you're willing to do the tough work to get through that tough exterior, you're rewarded with something that's sweet and delicious when you get to the insides of it. So as I studied, the key to really getting this passage and how it fits within the broader context of Scripture was actually found in one of my favorite passages in the Bible. As I read the words in Acts 9, verses 33 and 34... It says, there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Make your bed. And immediately he rose. And those words took me back to Jesus healing a paralytic man by the pool in Bethesda in John chapter 5. But it also took me back to Jesus healing the paralytic man In Mark chapter 2, one of my all-time favorite stories in Scripture, where you see four friends that had such determination that they would stop at nothing, and they even sawed a a hole in a stranger's roof to let their paralytic friend down on a pallet so that he might be healed by the healing touch of Jesus. And Jesus touches this man and heals him, and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And he perceives that the Pharisees are grumbling and says, and perceiving their grumbling in their hearts, he said, Which is easier? to say, son, your sins are forgiven, or son, pick up your pal and walk. And so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, pick up your pallet and walk. And the man picked up his pallet and he walked, and then they continued to grumble against him. So as you read through Mark chapter 2, the passage is really unlocked by the question that Jesus asked the onlookers that are grumbling in their hearts, which is harder to say? Your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? And the obvious answer to that question of the more difficult of the two is to say your sins are forgiven. This one requires the greater miracle. The healing of a paralytic man is an enormous miracle, no matter how you slice it. It's an awesome miracle, and I long to see miracles like that happen in my lifetime, and I believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he still performs miracles of this ilk in our very lifetime. But the Bible is filled with prophets and other godly men and women who are used to perform similar miracles to the raising of this paralytic man, but only one has been able to say, your sins are forgiven. 
And in order to be able to say those words, it would take God himself putting on flesh to become like us in every way aside from our sin, to die a criminal's death while bearing the full weight of the Father's wrath against sin upon his own shoulders and to endure separation from the triune relationship with his Father for the very first time in all of eternity. Did you get that? I mean, it's as if the coroner came in, pronounced you dead. Totally dead. I mean, there's not an in-between of dead and not dead. It's kind of like pregnant, right? <laughs> you know, there, there's no in-between language here. The, the test is either blue or it's pink. You know, the, you're pregnant or not pregnant. You're dead or you're not dead. You didn't have this glimmer of life that made you be able to reach out to some sort of life preserver and be able to bring yourself resuscitated back to life. And I've actually heard that analogy used to be able to describe the gospel. I've heard the, the gospel described in such a way as like, we're this drowning man, and Christ in his mercy throws a life preserver, and all we have to do is reach and grab the life preserver, and then we can be brought onto the boat of his salvation. Sorry, friends, that's not the gospel, according to the Bible. The gospel is you already drowned, so it would be like going to the historical site of the Titanic tomorrow and throwing out like a hundred life preservers and then screaming, get up! <laughs> Grab them! Come on! Swim to the top of the ocean! Don't you see that there's life preservers here? Just grab one of these and I'll bring you to life. You're going to be waiting there a long time. It's not going to happen because dead people don't grab for life preservers. Dead means dead. But Christ's miracle was the only one of its kind, and he was able to look at the situation and say, you're not dead anymore. You have life because I am not dead anymore, and I decided to have life. So therefore, I can be the giver of life because I took my life back up again from the dead. So you have these two amazing, awesome, jaw-dropping miracles, and they're designed to make you look to God with wonder and amazement and awe. But they're sandwiched between these two salvation narratives to serve as a reminder that even if we were there on the scene to observe a miracle like this occurring right before our eyes, as amazing as it would be, it would be very small compared to the miracle that brought each one of you who have called upon the name of Jesus salvation and a relationship with a holy God. And now that we have an understanding of how our passage is laid out, let's look at our passage starting in Acts 9. Starting in verse 32, it says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, and he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda, he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was also paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise, make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they returned, and they turned to the Lord. Man, do I love that passage. So as we dig in, and the story transitions from the last couple of chapters being primarily about Paul and now beginning a dialogue about Peter, it's critical because it reminds us that this story is not the acts of Paul, that this is the story of the Holy Spirit. 
Again, that's why our series is called The Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's why I think the book should be called The Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's certainly not about the Acts of the Apostles. This is a two-volume set. This is volume two of a two-volume set that Luke penned. The first was the Gospel of Luke, and it was written about the Acts of the earthly ministry of the Son of God, Jesus. And the second is the book of Acts, and it's about the acts of God, the Holy Spirit. And that's a healthy reminder for me, because when I got saved, and I was just so attracted to the ministry of Paul. I, I think it's because I identified with him to some degree. A guy with this checkered past who had to get knocked flat on his backside to be able to get my attention and be able to see the scales begin to come off of my eyes. And then taking the passion that I used to follow my sin with and following the Lord with that same passion that I used in working out the following of my sin. But I needed to be reminded that the story is not about Paul. If we read this and conclude, wow, do I love Paul? We've missed the point. Paul would never want us to come to that conclusion. You see that later on when he's bit by a snake on the Isle of Malta and the people start to worship him. And he says, what are you doing? Stop it. We're not here for this. Stop paying attention to me. I'm here to proclaim someone who's greater. And I'm just a tool. Luke, as the author of the book, would never want us to come to this conclusion. If we, if we read these stories and we conclude, I want to be like Paul. Or if a preacher preaches these stories and concludes, and the sermon concludes, hey, leave this place and go be more like Paul, then everybody has missed the point of the text. And I think it's healthy for a church to be reminded about this from time to time. These are not a bunch of moral stories about a bunch of biblical heroes that were put in the Bible to be able to teach us a good moral to go and live out throughout the week. These are parts of the story, and the story is all about one person, and that one person is Jesus Christ. And the acts of the Holy Spirit are intended to magnify the person of Jesus Christ. And if we keep that at the forefront of our minds, it serves the church so well. And it makes sure that we always end up having the right hero of the story. Like a lot of people have been hurt by focusing on the wrong hero. I've sat with person after person who has told me about how they felt when they watched one of their heroes fall in the faith. And that's because that person was never supposed to be your hero anyway. At best, they were a vehicle to point you to the true hero. And the church has hurt so many people because we love to create either heroes or villains. And I've seen a lot of people operate in that way. Hey, which list are you on? Are you on my hero list? Or are you on my villain list? Look, there's one hero, there's one story, there's not a bunch of little mini-heroes. And all of these stories point to that hero, and all of these stories are to play a little part in telling the bigger story of God's redeeming love and grace through the person of Jesus Christ. So let's examine one of these stories. In verses 32 to 35, we have Peter being used by God to heal this paralyzed man. So it starts out by simply saying Peter was going here and there, which I don't know about you, but I find to be pretty amusing language. <laughs> it kind of proves what I was saying at the beginning. 
that each story is chosen for a unique and theological reason by the Holy Spirit, because if the book was really supposed to be a detailed account of the ministries done by the apostles, you would think that Luke would give a little bit more detail than, hey, Peter was going here and there. You know, that's, that's not exactly Pulitzer Prize winning storytelling right there, is it? That's probably one of the classic understatements throughout all of Scripture. You could probably fill an entire book of just the accounts that happened while Peter was going here and there, right? But Luke's okay with just leaving it with he went here and there because Luke knew that that's not what the story is about. So Luke says that he also came after he went here and there. He came to the saints at Lydda. And this is pretty neat because it's subtle, but it makes this great argument for a balanced approach to a ministry within the church. Peter is going here and there, and he's doing the work of evangelism within the towns when he goes into them. But he's also stopping in where there's already an established church to strengthen the saints who have put their belief in Jesus. Some forget that a robust ministry is supposed to encompass both of these parts. It can't just be an evangelistic outreach. There has to be discipleship going on. There must be what we see here from Peter, taking time to encourage and build up those who are already Christians to help them have a deeper walk in Christ. It can't just be a ministry to the saints and have no evangelistic outreach. And I think that's more common around here. Look, that's how churches die. That's how churches start telling the gospel of Bruce Springsteen. And they tell you about their glory days. And they're in the past. And they're not talking about them as if there's any anticipation that the glory days are still something in the future that Jesus is going to do in and through the church. They become in, so inward focused that they forget that there's actually a world out there beyond the four walls of their church. Or they just support others who are going about here and there, but they neglect to do it themselves, which works out well for those who are over there, but it doesn't work out so well for those who are the here component. But here's Peter doing both. He's going about here and there, and he's also strengthening the body of local believers as he comes. And like I said a couple of weeks ago, we don't need complex models for ministry. We need to just let the Bible define things. The Bible tends to simplify where men tends to complicate, which is why we always need to go back to the word as our foundation of what things are supposed to look like. And it simply says that Peter found this paralytic man named Aeneas. Again, what is not covered in this book is enough to fill many, many, many books. I just don't get how anybody could read the Bible and conclude that this book is boring. Like, how did he find this man? Do you wonder that when you read it? Did he just happen to stumble upon him? Was this person brought to him? But if it was important, the Spirit would have written it down through Luke. So again, it's just a little detail that Luke didn't really see all that necessary to hit on. And Peter takes this man who had been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years and tells him to get up and walk. And in verse 34, Peter is very careful to tell this man who actually was responsible for doing the healing. Peter did not heal this man. 
Jesus Christ healed this man. Peter was simply the vessel that was used to accomplish this amazing work by the person of Jesus Christ. And it might sound like semantics, but really it's not. Peter did not want any of the credit for what was going on in this story. And more importantly, Peter didn't want any of the glory. So he reminds them, Jesus is the healer. I'm just the tool. And if the best that you can get when you leave here is to be able to remind the world that you're a tool, then you got something at church this morning. It reminds me that we are supposed to do the same thing when we are used by God. It's not us. It shouldn't be, we shouldn't be desiring credit for us. We certainly shouldn't be desiring any of the glory for us. If you find yourself in a situation where you're being used by the Lord, take note of what Peter does here in this text and make sure that you're doing the same. If you find yourself in a situation in which somebody is thanking you for some way that you were used by the Lord, you can tell them that they're welcome just to be polite, but make sure that you let them know you're welcome. It's an honor to be used, but it wasn't me. It's all God. And it was a privilege to be used by him. Jesus did this. I am just a tool. And don't just say it. Mean it. If we're saying it's all God, but we're secretly desiring the praises of man, then it exposes what's really going on in our hearts. If you come up afterwards and you tell me that the Lord really met you during this sermon, but I'm waiting by the back door waiting for you to just lobby praises on me and I leave here disappointed because I didn't get enough to fill my overinflated ego, then my heart wasn't in the right place when I was doing any of this to begin with. If we say that it's all God, but we find ourselves getting resentful that someone did not acknowledge your contribution, then it exposes where your heart really was to begin with. Be delighted in the simple but awesome reality that getting used by God is a get-to, and you get to be a tool for Jesus, and that get-to is more than enough. Be delighted in the enoughness that Jesus was glorified through simple people like us. So back to the story. Jesus heals this man through the ministry of Peter, and these words are so similar to words that are used elsewhere. I already mentioned that in the introduction, but they're strikingly similar to John chapter 5 and to Mark chapter 2. Only in John 5, the Pharisees seek to kill Jesus for healing the man at the pool at Bethesda. And in Mark 2, they're grumbling in their hearts about what gives Jesus the right to declare somebody forgiven for their sin. And here, the conclusion is quite a bit different, and we'll get into that in a moment, but the language is very similar, and that's not an accident, guys. It's not like we can notice the similarities, and we point them out, and then the Holy Spirit is like, well, now that you mention it, it is kind of similar, isn't it? Thank you for bringing that to my attention. You didn't bring that to the Spirit's attention. The Spirit brought it to your attention. The reason that the words are similar is because the Spirit wants to bring to mind those stories as we read this story to remind us that these are not all stories, but it's part of a story. Amen? I believe the Spirit wants to bring to mind those stories for a reason. One, to point out that the ministry that was being done by the apostles is just like the ministry that was done by Jesus. More on that in a moment. And two, it brings to mind the conclusion of what Jesus asked. Which is easier to say, you're healed, so get up and walk, or to say, your sins are forgiven, 
The lesser miracle is a picture of the greater. This man being made whole is a picture of the wholeness that we receive through the gospel of Jesus Christ when we come to believe in him. And though we are spiritually paralyzed because of sin, the gospel of Jesus has saved us and is restoring that which was broken by sin and is making us whole again. Behold, he is making all things new, it says in Revelation. And look at the conclusion. Look at this in verse 35. It says, And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. The whole town was saved. Look, I would love to see a miracle like this in my lifetime. And I've prayed to see miracles like the one in this text. But even seeing a miracle of that caliber pales in comparison to what it would be like if you woke up tomorrow and heard, and behold, all of Tom's River turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and was saved. And Brick saw the miracle and repented and turned to Christ. And within Point Pleasant, there was a miraculous revival and many turned to the Lord and were saved. That's the miracle in this text. That's the true and greater miracle that is being pointed at. Then we see another great miracle in verses 36 through 43. It says, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tapatha, which translated means Dorcas. And she was full of good deeds and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, hearing him, please come over without delay. And Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the disciples stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed and turned to the body and said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up, and then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and then he believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So we see this other great miracle, and Peter arrives in Joppa, there's this woman named Tabitha, or Dorcas, and if you think her name is funny, your name's probably funny, her so, whatever, John, you know. <laughs> Actually, that one's in the Bible, so let me pick another one. Um, Fred, you know, like you should probably be like, <laughs> that's a silly name. Um, but anyway, getting back to my point, if I have one. The text says that she was a godly woman, that she was full of charity and good works, but those are past tense verbs because in the present she has a little problem and that's that she's dead and um, she's very dead okay there's no like it's not like she was somewhat dead or kind of dead this woman is dead the scripture is really clear on that I, I've heard unbelieving critiques given attempt to chip away at this passage to suggest that she was just sick but verse 39 seems pretty clear that there's a pretty large crowd that's assembled here in this room observing what was going on. And when it says that they're showing off her tunics and the different garments that she had made while she was with them, 
That just means that they're having a memorial service for her. Isn't that what we do when we have a memorial service for somebody? We show off the things that they did during their lifetime as a way of memorializing their contributions that they made into our life. We memorialize who the person was by showing off some of the things that they've done. But it seems really clear that there's this pretty solidly clear enough that this is not some kind of like Monty Python thing. Like, I'm not quite dead yet. <laughs> I, th I think I'm better. <laughs> I'll go for a walk now. It's not like that, man. This is bring out your dead. Like this is, that's what's going on here. So she is dead. And in verses 40 through 41, we get to see Peter be a tool again. And Jesus ups the ante on his previous miracle. And this time, Jesus does not just heal a sick person, but resurrects a dead person. And just like the last time, Peter did not do this. He was an instrument. Jesus is the healer. And we see that in a moment, because once again, all the glory goes where it belongs, and that's to God. Are these words similar to words that are used elsewhere? And they're remarkably similar. Some of these exact phrases are used in the raising of Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8. And some of the language is strongly similar to phrases that are used in John chapter 11 for the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Is that an accident? Maybe you could have thought so in the language in the previous miracle, but here Luke is actually borrowing exact phrases from those exact accounts. So the Spirit gave Luke these terms because the Spirit wanted to use Luke to bring those terms and those accounts to mind. Why? To show that the ministry that was carried out with the apostles was just like the ministry that was done by Jesus. It demonstrates the same heart. It shows the same love. It has the same power. It gives the same one, the same glory. Even has the same outcomes. And the church is supposed to reflect the same heart, love, power, glory as the one who purchased her by his blood. And then look at the conclusion in verses 42 and 43. It says, And it became known throughout Joppa that many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with Simon the Tanner. So many came to believe again. So there's this miracle of this dead woman being brought to life, but there's this greater miracle of a whole town being brought to spiritual and eternal life. So in these miracles, we're able to see that the apostles took on the same things that Jesus did. Luke did not use the language that was precisely similar to the language used in the gospel writers referring to ministries that were done by Jesus on accident. Jesus told us in John 14, 12 that the church would do the same as he did and even greater. And that verse is a head-scratcher for many people. And there have been many who have used that verse and abused that verse to uphold their abuses of power. But the point of that verse was the point to the glory of the gospel. When Jesus died... The remnant of those who loved him and believed in him was still a very small number, but through miracles like this and through other things that the church would go through to magnify the name of Jesus, it would spread in ways that it never did during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And guys, it doesn't take a great miracle for this to be true. 
One of my favorite stories from history that I'd like to tell as I prepare to wrap up here, I'd love to tell you the story of one of the first revivals that spread throughout the Roman Empire. The Black Plague was sweeping throughout all of Europe and was just wiping out the entire Roman Empire. And people were literally fleeing from their lives, just running as fast as they could, not even knowing which direction they were going because they didn't know whether they were running further into the plague or whether they were running away from the plague. But people were dying left and right. And one of the early church fathers refused to leave his house and his church, but said what roughly translates from Latin into English, bring it on. And they stayed and cared for the sick and the dying and the hurting amongst them. Guess who those sick, dying, and hurting were? The same people that were persecuting and killing the church under the emperor Diocletian. So these same people that had been persecuting the church, the church is now staying to give dignity to them in the days of their final days as they're dying, even to the point of taking on death themselves. How much more Christ-like can an action become to take upon the death of another when we are healthy to be able to give them our health and our dignity to be able to show them the love of a father. And now Christians were just turning and showing compassion towards their persecutors and it caused the gospel to spread in ways that it was never spreading before throughout the empire. So no great miracle, but still participating in the greater works that Jesus predicted in John 14, 12, that he had prophesied that the church would be a part of. And not only do both passages conclude with many believed in the Lord. But these two passages are also sandwiched between two of the greatest salvation accounts in all of the book of Acts. Immediately before this passage, we see the salvation of Saul and we see a man who is a murderer and a persecutor of the church come to Jesus and put his faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And after this passage, we see an entire Gentile household of this man named Cornelius come to Christ. And it was seen as such a great miracle that it actually takes the next three chapters of the book of Acts to be able to digest what it was that was taking place here. And the conclusion of it all is, and I would still love to see a miracle of this caliber, as I'm sure we all would, but nothing beats the miracle of seeing somebody turn from death to life and get saved. So as I wrap up, I want to give four application points that I would like you to consider. One, if you are here and you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, I want to tell you as a fact, this is not my opinion, man. This is a fact. I've experienced it myself. I could not have been running in the opposite direction harder than I was running in the opposite direction. And Jesus Christ was gracious enough to reach down and grab me by the back of the neck and say, no, enough. You've run away from me for too long. You are my child. Come be with me. Come away with me, my love. And there's no greater miracle than that. And if you're sitting here and you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you want to experience a miracle, try it. Put your faith in Jesus. 
Don't sit there saying you want to see a miracle if you've never put your faith in Jesus because obviously you don't want to see a miracle that bad if you continue to kick against the goads. So I just ask you, what is keeping you? You want to see miracles happen in your lifetime? Put your faith in the one who is miraculous. The only one that only looked death in the eye and said, I don't feel like being dead today, so I won't. Boulder, get out of my way. I'm walking out of here. And death or this stupid rock isn't going to stop me. And I'll leave my burial garments right there as proof that I, in fact, am alive. Number two, when we are used by God, we need to give God all the glory because none of us has the power to bring anyone from death to life. Guess what? You know how many of you have resurrection power? None of you. I mean, I don't know if you thought there was going to be a different answer. (laughs) If you do, it's just what Peter was doing in this story, and it's Jesus Christ who has that power working in and through you. But if somebody tries to give you the credit, point them back to God and give God all the glory and just say, man, all I am is a tool. All I've ever wanted to be in this life is a tool. If you want to compliment this guy, when I leave this place, just say, Eric, you are the biggest tool that I've ever met. And I'll give you a high five and say, hallelujah, you're a tool too, brother. (laughs) If you are seeking miracles, number three, we need to be reminded that there's nothing wrong with wanting to see a miracle. We want to be absolutely settled on the reality that the greatest miracle is Christ bringing somebody from death to new life. So as you sit here, personal application for you, or you settle in your heart as you read these miracles and you say, man, I want to experience what they experienced in the book of Acts. What is it that you want to experience? Do you want to experience seeing this cool stuff happen so that you say, can say you saw cool stuff happen? Or do you want to be able to say, I want to be able to say, I saw all of Tom's River get saved. I saw my whole school get saved. I saw my whole campus get saved. I saw my whole workplace get saved. I watched the Lord work through the salvation of my father when we all mocked that man and made fun of that man when he would tell us about this new life that he had in Christ and one by one, all of the members of his family got saved. That's the book of Acts being lived out before our very eyes. And lastly, we as a church need to never lose the excitement and enthusiasm and awe over the fact that there is no greater miracle than having somebody go from death to life. If somebody comes and tells you, man, that person that we've been praying for, they just got saved. And you're lukewarm to that. Check your pulse! Wake up! If somebody tells you that, you should be springing out of your seat and saying, Hallelujah! What a Savior! That He is still bringing people from death to life before our very eyes. May we see whole towns and families and schools and campuses and workplaces be converted to Him in our lifetime. Amen? Jesus, thank You so much that You are still the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, may we see an outpouring of your spirit and we see a ransom of souls. 
brought to you. In Jesus' name, amen.